Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Contemporary scholarship on the Mughal Empire has generally ignored the role Sanskrit played in imperial, political, and literary projects. However, in Culture of Encounters, Sanskrit at the Mughal Court, Audrey Trushke demonstrates that Sanskrit was central to the process of royal self-definition. She documents how Brahmin and Jain intellectuals were working closely with Persian-speaking Islamic elite around the cultural framework of the central royal court. These projects often revolved around cross-cultural textual production and translation, putting Sanskrit and Persian works in conversation. The production of Mughalbak texts and the literary reflection or silence about Brahmin and Jain participation reveals unexplored horizons for understanding South Asian imperial history. In our conversation, we discuss the dynamics of the Mughal court, the influential leaders Akbar, Jahangir, and Shah Jahan, Persian translations of Sanskrit epics, the integration of Sanskrit materials into imperial knowledge, the end of Sanskrit at the Mughal court, and the tricky reception of contested histories in contemporary India. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Audrey Trushke about her great new book, Culture of Encounters, Sanskrit at the Mughal court. Welcome, Audrey. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Yeah. And uh, it was great to read your, your new book or one of your new books, Culture of Encounters, Sanskrit at the Mughal Court. Uh, it, it does a lot of work. It's, it's richly detailed and historical uh, and, and literary knowledge, but also I think pr- uh, provides us some uh, theoretical tools to think about, uh, especially these sites of, of intersection, which I'm really interested in as well. So uh, thank you for writing a great book. Before we uh, hop into the book, though, uh, it's our tradition here to to learn a little bit about you and how you came to the study of Muslim societies. So could you tell us perhaps what drew you into uh, the study, mentors that were influential or uh, how you ended up where you are? Absolutely. So, I mean, for me, this really goes back to college um, and the, the original hook for me, which may be a little bit surprising, uh, given this this book, what was actually religion. I was a religious studies major as an undergraduate. My interest in religion goes back as, as far as I go back, basically. Um, and when, when I went to college, I didn't really have a specific idea of what religion or religions I would study. I took a class on Hinduism, and I was totally blown away. Um, the, the stories, the gods, the, just the, the entire sort of mythology, cosmology, it was so starkly different than anything that I, as an American born and raised in the Midwest, anything, it was so different than anything that I had encountered up until that point in my life, right? I was 18 years old, a freshman in college. Um, and to me, that sort of initial bafflement, what that signaled was that I was lacking, something. I thought if this stuff, if I really just, if I don't have any framework for comprehending it, I better get 
that framework. I better figure this out. Um, and that was sort of the initial hook. From there, things snowballed. I ended up taking four years of Sanskrit as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. I ended up taking a bunch more courses on Hinduism in particular and Hindu thought. Um, and it really remained sort of, my, my focus remained on, on India and on Hindu traditions in particular as an undergraduate. When I then decided to, to go on and do graduate work, um, I sort of... I, I was I was growing more interested in history um, and in sort of grounded history. I was growing more interested in empires and power. Um, and my sort of study of, of Hindu stories, particularly of, of the two great Hindu epics, it, sort of where I was at at that point was not lending itself well to a more historical framework. And so I decided to add in Persian and Islam. Um, I started learning Persian. I started learning a little bit about Islam. And then early in my graduate career, I sat down and I thought, what can I do with all of this? I have a little bit of Persian. I have a solid background in, in Sanskrit. I have a training in religious studies. But by that point, I was growing a little bit less interested in, in religion questions. Um, and so I thought the Mughals. That's what I can do, right? In terms of Indo-Islamic history, that's the biggest game in town. Let me look at this empire and see what I can come up with. Um, and as it turns out, the Mughals had a sustained, long-term, nearly 100-year interest in Sanskrit traditions, um, both sort of Hindu, specifically Brahmin-led traditions, and then also Jain traditions, as I talk about in the book. Um, so that's sort of how I came to it. I mean, it's, you know, it's not... But there's not so much a personal story. It's really more of an intellectual um, love. But I have grown ever more fascinated over the course of my adult life in these topics. Sure. Now, this project, uh, as far as I understand, kind of stems from your, your dissertation work. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge uh, first as a dissertation and then perhaps some of the changes uh, in transforming this into a book? Absolutely. So as a dissertation, so like I said, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, I've got a bunch of Sanskrit knowledge, I'm starting on Persian, I'm going to, you know, be able to read pre-modern Persian within a couple of years, what can I do with this? I come up with the Mughals. And at that point, you know, I mean, my PhD is, is coming out of an area studies department, a South Asia studies department. I was being trained by language and literature people. Um, and so I very much had a sort of framework and mindset of looking at literary encounters. And in the dissertation, I explicitly framed the, the set of texts and, and cross-cultural interactions that I discuss um, as Sanskrit and Persian interactions. Later, after the dissertation, after my PhD, when I started to transform that work into a book, I thought that, you know, some of those linguistic categories were perhaps more useful than others. What I basically did in the book is I kept the emphasis on Sanskrit. I think that that is useful as not only categorizing a language, but an entire literary culture and tradition of knowledge. Um, but then I sort of replaced the Persian side of the framing with Mughal. Right. So so sort of substituting in more of an imperial political category, whereas previously I had had a literary one. And I feel that in the book that allowed me to tie this set of literary encounters much more closely with the center of Mughal power. It allowed me to ask much more pointed questions about why were the Mughals engaged in this set of cross-cultural literary interactions? What did they get out of it? How did this play into Mughal authority and the articulation of Mughal power in the Indian subcontinent? Um, I do recognize in the book, of course, that when you talk about Sanskrit-Mughal interactions, you are using non-comparable categories, right? You know, Mughal versus Sanskrit, right? I mean, we, you know, language versus an, an, an imperial power. Um, but yet, I think that, that it is a useful framework. In terms of other changes, um, I think the book is more strictly historical than the dissertation. Um, you know, I have sort of, uh, over the last several years, remade myself into a historian, right? As I said, I come out of a language literature training. I have not abandoned that. I have embraced that, but I have brought that um, into uh, the discipline of history, right? And I now teach in a history department as a historian. Um, and the, with the first book, I consciously made an attempt to sort of present this story and this narrative more in a historical mode. Now, uh, people that are coming to this history uh, in your book are likely coming from different angles, some that are interested in uh, Islamic history, others that are maybe interested in Sanskrit. So um, can you perhaps set us up a little bit uh, in terms of 
background we might need to know in order to get into your project. Um, and in relation to that, how, how have others uh, generally approached the Moogles uh, in terms of scholarship? Uh, and what are some of the broader uh, conceptual interventions you sought to make with your book? All right. That's, that's a lot of questions. All right. Um, okay. What do you need to know to understand this book? One, you need to know the basics of Sanskrit, right? You don't need to know the language, obviously, but you need to know that Sanskrit is the, the, the sort of ancient literary language of India. It is a language often specifically associated with Hinduism. I'm not dealing with that so much in the book, right? There is, you know, I'm not dealing with the Vedas and, you know, the Vedic corpus and things like that. Rather, I am dealing with Sanskrit literary production um, that, that, you know, concerns things like uh, literature, poetry, philosophy, praise poems, things of that nature. So, you need to know that Sanskrit goes back a couple thousand years in, in India um, and that this was an active literary tradition all the way up through the 17th century, at least in many parts of India, including in the sort of central core of the Mughal Empire. Right? From the Mughal side, the big thing, I, I suppose, sort of the big historical things that one needs to know here is that there is a tradition of Indo-Muslim power in India from the very late 12th century onward. Um, starting in the late 12th century into the early 13th century and then going on for a period of maybe five to six hundred years, you have a series of Islamic or Islamicate dynasties that are ruling much of North India and at times parts of central India as well. Um, there are a number of dynasties that are based in Delhi, right? The earlier ones we call the Delhi Sultanates. That goes on for 300 some years. And then when the Delhi Sultanate ends, the Mughals take over in 1526. The Mughals were the large, eventually they grew the largest empire in Indian history up until that point in time. They were incredibly powerful. They were incredibly wealthy. Um, they were widely known and sort of respected and feared across the world. Um, what most, when most people think of the Mughals, right? Uh, I suppose most people actually never think of the Mughals. Okay. But for people who actually do think about the Mughals, okay. People sort of think of them in two major frameworks. They think of them as Muslims through a religious framework and the Mughals were Muslims. That is true. Okay. And then they think of them through a sort of language framework as speaking Persian. That is also true. The Mughals declared Persian their official administrative language in 1582, and that decision lasted for the entirety of the rest of the Mughal Empire. Because of this, right, so people think about the Mughals as an Islamic or an Islamicate dynasty. They think of them as a Persian or a Persianate dynasty. Most people have thought that the Mughals have nothing to do with Sanskrit, right? Why would a Muslim Persian speaking dynasty care about India's ancient literary culture? Right? Why, why would that come up? Um, and so I think, you know, sort of where one place that I start at, at which I start the book is to say that people have just never asked the question. No one's ever asked were the Mughals very interested in Sanskrit because people have assumed that they weren't with, before even really posing the question. Um, and so people just haven't looked. They haven't looked for the sort of relevant sources, the relevant documentation of this. Um, to sort of add to this, a significant number of my sources are written in Sanskrit. Aside from myself, few, if any, Mughal historians know Sanskrit. Most of the Sanskrit materials I work with are not translated. And so as a result, there's this entire huge archive of materials relevant to studying the Mughals that Mughal historians, one, don't know about, and two, can't access in any case, right? And so sort of through, through sort of ignorance and neglect, um, Rather than any any sort of animus, uh, this idea has been perpetuated, you know, over over the over over numerous generations of scholars that the Mughals had no interest in India's in Indian traditional society and in Indian learning cultures, and certainly not in Sanskrit, the high literary language of classical India. Um, I hope that my book blows all of that out of the water. <laughs> in terms of conceptual ideas. So, I mean, there are, there are numerous ones in the book. Um, maybe two that I will highlight here are the cross-cultural encounters framework and the sort of anti-legitimation framework. So for the cross-cultural encounters framework, um, when most people think, or most scholars think of cross-cultural encounters, we think of this as occurring on the edges of something, 
Right. It, often this is something that we talk about on the frontiers, right? On the frontiers of empire, there's all sorts of interesting cross-cultural stuff going on. Or maybe it was a more peripheral member of a court or a society or an empire that was doing certain things, right? Um, and in fact, some Mughal historians have recognized figures such as Dara Shikoh, a mid-17th century Mughal prince, who sort of did have his own little mini-interest in Sanskrit text, right? But people have always said, oh, that, that was just a Dara thing. That was just a peripheral thing. I argue that these, the cross-cultural Sanskrit-Persian or Sanskrit-Mughal encounters that we see in the mid-16th to the mid-17th centuries, these are not peripheral. They're not on the edges. They are central, and we see them at the core of the empire. These are sponsored by the Mughal kings. They are happening in the central Mughal court. Right, So I'm sort of adopting a framework of encounters or interactions, but then I'm placing it in the very center of the empire. And one of the sort of strong, stronger arguments that I try to advance in the book is precisely that these cross-cultural encounters are central to understanding the nature of Mughal power. Right, You can't just portray them as sideline issues. You know, the Mughals were a Persian-speaking Muslim dynasty, and oh yeah, footnote 32, they were kind of into Sanskrit a little bit. Right, That's not, That doesn't suffice. The second conceptual interface uh, that I, or sort of conceptual idea that I would point out um, that, that kind of frames the book and comes up at various points is that I am very dissatisfied with legitimation. So historians in particular draw upon this idea of legitimation to explain why governments do sort of non-military activities, right? Everybody understands why an empire goes out and conquers a province, right? That's sort of the raison d'etre of empires, right? To go out and, and conquer various people. But why does an empire, why is an empire interested in literature? Why do they care about poetry? Why are they sponsoring scholarship? And what many people fall back on is legitimation. This idea that, that governments need to justify their rule, right? The reason why I am not satisfied with legitimation as a framework that explains the set of cross-cultural encounters that I discuss is that legitimation assumes a certain audience, right? It assumes a broad-based audience. It also assumes the need to justify one's power. And I'm just not convinced that any of that was actually an operation in terms of Mughal encounters with the Sanskrit cultural world. In short, I argue in the book that the Mughals were interested in Sanskrit sort of in order to create a story and a narrative for themselves, this wasn't about the Indian people they ruled. It wasn't about the Rajputs, you know, the Hindu kings that they were trying to incorporate into the fold. This was about the Mughals. And we need to recognize that sort of self-need and, and desire on the part of the kings themselves as motivating the set of central cross-cultural encounters rather than assuming some sort of broader uh, legitimation-based need. Yeah, it's great. And you, you, you do all of that very successfully, I think. Um, now, a lot of the uh, kind of case studies you're looking at um, are either centered or kind of um, uh, related to the Mughal court specifically. Um, so can, can you help us think about what, what exactly does court culture look like? What types of activities are happening through the cultural framework of the central court? Um, and who were perhaps some of the, the key people involved in these contexts in terms of producers and audiences and supporters and these kind of things? Mm. Very good. Okay, so Mughal court culture. So I think when people think when people think of courts in a pre-modern sense, we think of the sort of highly ritualized, sort of highly structural thing, right? A king sitting on a throne, the courtiers standing below, sort of holding formal court. That is accurate to a great degree. The Mughals were, were sort of the masters of court formality. Um, but I'm really using court in a slightly broader sense, um, which is to say that sort of wherever the Mughal king was, whenever he was, you know, talking with people, consulting with his courtiers, that is the Mughal court, right? This is something that sort of moves with the Mughal king. You see it in both formal and slightly more informal settings. Um, in terms of sort of who's involved, so one thing that I argue in in the book, and I provide uh, I think quite a bit of documentation of this, is that some really key people are involved, um, and then this I think really bolsters my argument that these cross cultural encounters were central to to Mughal court culture and not sort of on the periphery. Um, so Akbar involves people like Abu Fazl, all right, his chief vizier um, in the latter half of his reign, um, the sort of architect of Akbar's imperial image, sort of most of what 
most modern people think they know about Akbar is actually what Abu Fazl wanted us to think about Akbar because he wrote the major imperial history of his reign upon which most scholars still rely extensively. So Abu Fazl is involved in this stuff. Abu Fazl's brother, Akbar's poet laureate, Faizi, is involved, right? The sort of chief poet of the empire. He has an official position at court. He is involved. Uh, various high-level courtiers, um, you know, the sort of people that, you know, Akbar would, you know, send out on campaign, right? Go conquer this province for me. Those people were also involved. The Mughal princes were often involved. And that's something I discuss um, a, a little bit in the book about how um, particularly Emperor Akbar tried to incorporate some of his translations of Sanskrit texts into Persian into the curriculum used to teach his sons, right? So, you know, whenever whenever you have a text produced, you always, at least you often do have this question, who, if anybody ever read it, right? Once the text was written or translated, whoever read it. Um, and in this case, we do have attestations that the Mughal princes not only read it, but were actively instructed in, in some of these works. Um, so some really key movers and shakers in the empire were involved on the sort of Mughal Persian side of the exchanges. Now on the Sanskrit side of the exchanges, um, things things are a little bit, it's a little bit harder to, to sort of generalize there. Um, and it's also a little bit harder for me to get at the facts historically. So basically what I say in the book is that there are two major groups of Sanskrit intellectuals, Sanskrit knowing peoples who are involved with the Mughal court, Brahmins and Jains. Okay. Brahmins, upper caste of Hinduism, um, sort of the, the, you know, thought of as kind of the, the kind of premier traditionally learned class in, in classical India, um, including all the way into the 16th and 17th centuries. So there, there is a group of Brahmins that um, they go to the Mughal court. Some of them spend time there. Some of them produce Sanskrit texts for the Mughal court. Some of them collaborate with the Mughals, help them translate Sanskrit texts into Persian, so on and so forth. The Brahmin side of these exchanges is actually very difficult for me to reconstruct, um, and that is because of what I call the Brahmanical silence about them. Um, other than actually writing Sanskrit texts for the Mughals, other than that, with only a couple of exceptions, Brahmins don't actually write about what they're doing at the, at the Mughal court in Sanskrit. Right. We have some mentions of vernacular text, but not in Sanskrit. Um, so I'm really reconstructing what Brahmins were there and who they were from sort of piecemeal records, names here and there, largely in Persian sources. And then from the text that were actually produced, often a Sanskrit text will name its patron. Right. So then we have at least a little bit of evidence. Um, but Brahmins are not big on elaborating what they're they're doing. Jains, on the other hand, um, write extensively about their experiences at the Mughal court. And so I can say a whole lot more about who these Jains were. I mean, as it turns out, this is a sort of particular group of Jains. Uh, they are Shvetambara Jains, and most of them belong to two particular sects within Jainism, both of which are based in Gujarat. Um, and that is something I try to delve into in the book as well, is kind of the, the sort of highly localized and regional nature of where at least some of these groups of Sanskrit intellectuals are, are coming from. Now, um, you try to make some uh, conclusions about the different uh, responses or reflections on uh, Brahmin and Jain uh, involvement in court culture. Um, wh why do you think we have uh, Brahmins largely silent where Jains are, are much more active in kind of uh, self-representing their participation? Mm. This is a question that I have thought a lot about and I really only have a half answer. So – I have an answer, I think, or a series of answers to why Jains wrote so much, right? I have hundreds, if not thousands of pages of, of written Sanskrit text authored by Jains that talk about what they're doing in Mughal environs. Um, and I think that the one reason why the Jains were so verbose about this, um, particularly the Tapagacha, a particular sect of Jainism, is that they used their interactions with the Mughals in order to sort of recreate themselves and imagine their own religious community in a particular light. Um, and you, you see things uh, such as some of these Jain authors will adopt 
the language of Mughal supremacy and Mughal imperialism. Um, and they'll start, start talking about things, writing in Sanskrit, that sort of sound very odd, right? So they'll, they'll talk about, for example, armies of monks that start to go out and conquer people, right? This doesn't mean that Jain monks were going out bearing weapons in the 17th century, right? But rather, this is an importation of sort of how the Mughals went out and conquered various areas and saying, and, and then a Jain writer coming along and saying, hey, we can use that sort of imagery, right? We can talk about our success as a religious group in using that sort of language. And so I think that this set of encounters, it, I think that it was crucial for this particular sect of Jainism, and I think that it helped them um, and, and in their sort of quest to reimagine themselves in a particular light. So in terms of the other half of this question, why didn't Brahmins write very much, really hardly anything in Sanskrit about their interactions with the Mughals? I'm afraid that I don't really have a great answer to that question. Um, I do pose the question in the book. I am open about the fact that, that I, I don't really have a solid um, you know, response to it. Um, but, I, but I do say a couple of things. The first thing that I say is I, I caution pretty strongly against reading any sort of anxiety um, or any, any sort of animosity or kind of negative things into that silence. And I do that because I think that especially thinking from a 20th and 21st century perspective, thinking about Hindu-Muslim conflict in India today, I think there's a tendency on the part of many people to project that anachronistically into the past. And so people would look at this Brahmanical silence and they would say, well, maybe the Brahmins didn't want to help the Mughals. Maybe they were forced to do it. Maybe they were embarrassed about having done it. And that's why they didn't write about it in, in Sanskrit. Um, I will certainly concede that that remains a historical possibility. Um, but without historical evidence that points to that, I don't think that there is a good reason to jump to that conclusion, given the, the specific historical context of the Mughal Empire in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, so then, if we don't want to have that reading, what, what sort of reading do we want to have? Um, you know, and I think that to some extent I can see that there are historical questions that historians, at least currently, can't answer. Um, maybe new information will come to light that will enable me to make better sense of the Brahmanical silence on, you know, their cross-cultural encounters with the Mughal court. Maybe somebody will come along and see the same evidence that I saw and make a more compelling argument about it. And I, I certainly look forward to either or both of those possibilities happening. Um, but in the meantime, the sort of best that I can do is to kind of draw upon the small places where Brahmins do say something about what they're doing at the Mughal court. And I talk about one particular text um, from, from the mid-17th century called the Kavindra Chandrodaya, um, where a bunch of Brahmins get together and they write um, a sort of praise poem for this guy, Kavindra Charya Sarasvati, um, who was a Brahmin. He went to the Mughal court. He did various things there. Among other things, he got a major tax concession from the Mughals that relinquished a pilgrimage tax on, on Hindu pilgrims to Varanasi as well as Allahabad, Prayag. Um, and so in that instance, we do have this one text. It's not a historical work. It's not documenting cross-cultural exchanges, but it is premised on their existence. And I do try to draw out certain historical threads there. So I pose the question, I say what I don't think we can say based at present. I have some thoughts based on the sort of exception that proves the rule, but that's sort of as far as at least I have been able to go currently on that side. Yeah. Sounds, sounds smart. <laughs> um, now, uh, a, a good portion of the book uh, deals with this process of translation and translation projects. Um, and uh, one, you, uh, one chapter you focus on Persian translations of Sanskrit classics. Um, can you talk a little bit about the purpose or the goals of these translations, how they were produced, how they were consumed, um, and what it might tell us about the, the Mughal court? Mm, very good. So, okay, so these translations. Um, so the process of translation itself is actually kind of interesting. Um, nobody involved knew both Sanskrit and Persian, right? The source language and the target language to use sort of modern translation theory language. Um, so what they did was the, the Sanskrit wallet sat there, they read the text in Sanskrit, they said a verbal translation into Hindi or Hindavi or Hindustani, right? The sort of modern common vernacular at the time. Um, the Mughals, who also all spoke Hindi, heard it in Hindi and then wrote down their translation of the vernacular, a verbal translation in Persian. Um, 
This process produced a surprisingly close set of translations, especially as pertains to the Mahabharata. This is one of the the two great Sanskrit Hindu epics, um, and it's the the text on to which I devote the most attention in culture of encounters. So. The goal of translation. Um, the, this particular translation of the Mahaparita, which is renamed the Razamnama, the Book of War in Persian. Um, this is done in the mid 1580s. It is a, a sort of central project in Akbar's court. This work is really long. It's long in Sanskrit. It's not quite as long, but still quite long in Persian. So it takes a bunch of people. It takes them several years. Um, and the work had not been previously translated into Persian. And so when I set out to sort of theorize about the goals of the translation, um, I kind of deal with this, I suppose, in two sections. One, I try to talk about the goals going into the translation, right? And at that moment, I mean, you, you have the Mughal king Akbar with very, in association with sort of, you know, some of his central courtier guys. They decide that they want to translate this Sanskrit text, but they don't yet know what's in it. Right. Presumably they know the basics. Presumably they have some sense that, you know, there's two sides. They fight a big war. One side wins. Right. Or something like that. Um, But they don't yet know the sort of detailed content. So I'm trying to figure out what their motivations were at the moment where they didn't yet know the details of the text. Um, And I basically argue um, that it's it's a sort of it it is a pseudo historical attempt. It's a pseudo historical mission for, for Akbar and his court. Akbar had a deep vested interest in projecting himself as an Indian king, not as an Indo-Muslim king, not as a Muslim king, not as an invader, but as an Indian king. And in order to do that, he drew upon the, by that time, several hundred year long tradition of Indo-Muslim rule. But he also wanted to go back even further. And the Mahabharata allowed him to do that. This is one of our earliest Sanskrit texts that deals with the question of kingship, right? I mean, it's hard to summarize this epic, you know, and say it's about one topic. But if you were going to do that, you might say it's about kingship, right? Um, And so through this text, Akbar is able to learn, one, some of the names and, and stories associated with the Indian kings of old, and he's also able to project himself as their continuation, right? And sort of give himself a multi-thousand year long history, you know, uh, let me say it another way, a, a history that is several thousand years long in terms of the lineage of Indian kingship, as opposed to just saying, oh, I'm an Indo-Muslim king. That tradition goes back to the late 12th century. Now, in terms of how the text actually gets consumed, so this is an elite text. It is it is an elite translation, and it is meant for an elite audience. Um, there are several copies made within the first couple of decades after the translation was completed. Most of these uh, initial copies were heavily illustrated. Okay, and I, I talk a little bit in the book, and I actually talked more in subsequent articles um, about how the trans the the images are themselves participating in the act of translation, right? So there's both a text thing going on and an image thing as well. Um, but you know, the, the the sort of master imperial copy and the subsequent copies, at least for the the first couple of decades, these were meant to be consumed by elites, by the Mughal kings, by the princes, by chief courtiers, by the makers and shakers of the Mughal empire, right? These were not widely distributed across the empire. These weren't sent, you know, to every Rajput court or or anything like that. I, I believe I note this in Culture of Encounters, although now my memory is failing me a little bit, that there is, in addition to sort of the immediate Mughal reception, there is a much longer reception that stretches into the 18th and 19th centuries when this Persian Mahabharata becomes particularly popular and well-read by Hindu readers. That is a fascinating story when Hindus start to encounter their a sort of central text of, as they perceive it, of their own religious tradition, not in Sanskrit, but in Persian. Um, but that, that is a later 18th and 19th century story, and it, it was not an original intention of the Mughal translation movement. Now, um, you, you mentioned uh, briefly earlier uh, Abu al-Fazl and his role in the kind of the literary production of Mughal uh, kingship. Um, can you give us a little bit, uh, kind of flesh this out? How was he integrating Sanskrit materials into the imperial knowledge realm? What was the motivation behind his work? Mm. So yeah, this is, this is the sort of core topic of chapter four. So 
As I mentioned, Abu Fazl wrote the major imperially sponsored history of Akbar's reign. Not the only imperially sponsored history, not by a long shot, but the major one. The last one is sort of the defining one, the one that we we all Mughal historians still really rely upon today. Um, and he wrote this in three volumes. The first two volumes are, are chronological, more straight up chronicle. But then volume three is the Aini Akbari, the Aini Akbari. Um, and this is an attempt to account for the institutes of Akbar. Abu Fazl covers a huge variety of topics in this incredibly long text. Um, you know, he talks about the army, he talks about the, the royal household, he talks about the different provinces of India. And he also has a section on traditional Indian learning, which is basically Sanskrit learning. He goes over um, the different schools of Indian philosophy, right? The sort of uh, six traditional darshan, darshanas, the sort of six traditional, we might say, Hindu schools of thought now, um, plus the sort of three additional Jain, Buddhist, atheist um, traditions. Um, and he, he talks about Sanskrit literature. He talks about the, the Nayaka, Nayika traditions, so on and so forth. And so what I do in chapter four is I really delve into sort of certain key parts of that. And I, I talk about, you know, what was Abu Fazl doing here when he tries to explain Sanskrit knowledge in a Persian sort of quasi-historical work? Um, what, how does he do that? Right. Uh, what, what is the point of all of this? Just to highlight one thing that, that I bring out in that section, one really striking thing to me when I started reading this is that Abu Fazl uses an incredible amount of Sanskrit vocabulary. Um, and I give an example in the text where he's discussing Mimamsa. Mimamsa is, is a, a school of philosophical thought within the Sanskrit tradition. Um, and much of Mimamsa discourse is highly technical. In this particular section, Abu Fazl is talking about the means of knowledge. How do we know what we know? Right. If you see something directly, that's pratyasha, pratyaksha, that's direct perception. What if you infer something? That's something else. Right. So he's outlining what are the acceptable means of knowledge in Mimamsa philosophy. And yet he uses so much Sanskrit vocabulary that this passage is basically unintelligible to anybody who has not been properly trained in Mimamsa philosophy. Um, as a Sanskritist who has spent uh, a, you know, more time than I honestly might have liked reading Mimamsa philosophy, it made perfect sense to me. But there's no way that your average 17th century reader of Indo-Persian made sense of this, right? So what is Abu Fazl trying to do here? Um, and I argue that he's basically trying to import not only ideas from the Sanskrit realm, but even the means of expressing those ideas down to the level of language into Indo-Persian. Um, and this sort of plays into a larger point that I try to make throughout the book, that this set of cross-cultural encounters, especially as Akbar's court conceptualized them, this was not something that was supposed to happen and then stop. On the contrary, this was something that was supposed to be ongoing, right? The idea being, and this is why I titled the book, culture of encounters, right? That a the, that encounter itself was supposed to become a central part of the Mughal tradition. Now, whether this was successful, I don't know if I would say that, right? But I think that that was the vision of particularly people like Abu Fazl. Now, um, towards the end of the book, you kind of point to, uh, but, but I, I'm assuming you take this up in part in some of your um, current work. Um, is the decline of Sanskrit at the Mughal court. Um, so can you talk about some of the, the shifting circumstances that uh, kind of enabled this decline? Uh, what what was all it about? Right. So I basically argue that there's kind of two major, largely separate, basically totally separate actually, processes going on here. Um, there's sort of a language thing and then there's a politics Thing. Um, and the language thing I deal with first because I think that it, it really bears the brunt of sort of explaining the causality here. Why did Sanskrit decline as a, as a popular tradition with which to engage in the Mughal court? So basically Sanskrit was kind of on the way out in the 17th century. Um, and as it was on the way out, Hindi was on the rise. Um, and not just Hindi as a vernacular language you know, that you would have conversation in in the bazaar when you're buying your rice, right? But Hindi also as a high literary language, particularly Braj Pasha. And this is something that other scholars have written extensively about, particularly Alison Bush, and I draw upon her work extensively in this section of the book. 
And so I argue that basically from a Mughal perspective, uh, Hindi, particularly Braj Pasha, was basically replacing Sanskrit, right? And it was basically serving the same sorts of functions that, that Sanskrit had served up until that point. And so there was just a sort of slow way in which Hindi was supplanting Sanskrit in Mughal circles. And I think at least, at least to date, that's what I see as the sort of major causal argument here. There is also a secondary reason, however, which is a political shift. Aurangzeb Alamgir comes to power in 1658. Um, there is a violent war of succession. He kills two of his brothers. He drives a third out of India and he throws his, his father behind uh, locked doors and sort of throws away the key, so to speak. None of this was unusual. Violent successions were actually quite standard in Mughal India. Um, but Aurangzeb was in some ways different from, from prior Mughal kings. Uh, he was in some ways not different, but, but in some ways he was. And I argue that basically when Aurangzeb comes to power, he has, as he sees it, a vested interest in distinguishing the language of his authority claims from those of Dara Shikoh one of his brothers and his major challenger for the throne, right? There were four brothers, but it was really a contest between Dara and Aurangzeb. Um, and Dara Shikoh has had sort of been engaged with a series of cross-cultural interactions with Sanskrit intellectuals and with the Sanskrit cultural realm and literature more broadly for at least two decades leading up to the War of Succession. So when Aurangzeb comes to power, I think, you know, as I read it, he sort of thinks, you know, I don't want anything to do about this. A lot of people thought Dara was going to win the war. That didn't happen. I won. I Aurangzeb won. So, so let me just have a strong break with Dara's way of articulating himself as the Tubi Mughal emperor. And so what Aurangzeb does is he cuts off uh, the remaining ties, which is really singular, the, the sort of single remaining tie between um, the Sanskrit cultural world and the Mughal court, which is that this guy I mentioned before, Kavindracharya Sarasvati, is still at the Mughal court. He was receiving a regular stipend from Emperor Shah Jahan, and he was still sort of hanging around. So Aurangzeb cuts him off and, and sends him packing. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that this does not kill off the Mughal interest in Sanskrit entirely, especially at a sub-imperial level. Um, so Kavindracharya, for example, he lands on his feet. He goes over to Danishmand Khan, um, a Mughal noble, and sort of, you know, has some ties with him. Um, one of Aurangzeb's uncles later sponsors um, some, some Sanskrit-related projects. Shaista Khan is his name. He even authors uh, Sanskrit poetry himself, which is a sort of new type of thing that we don't see happening in the Akbar through Shah Jahan period. Um, so it doesn't kill off the Mughal interest in Sanskrit entirely, um, but it does sever ties between the central court and the Sanskrit cultural world, ties that were already significantly uh, weakened by the sort of decline of Sanskrit coupled with the rise of Hindi. Now, uh, usually uh, at the end of these conversations, I ask people what they're what they're working on now. Uh, but you have been very prolific, and you already have another book that is uh, out in South Asia and about to be uh, out here in North America. Uh, so um, I want to frame this a little bit differently. In um, one, can you can you tell us about uh, your your latest work? Um, but also, y you've had a lot of. Um, I mean there's been a, a great reception in terms of, of volume uh, in contemporary India of your work, um, both for, for Culture of Encounters. You got a lot of uh, I think it seemed like positive responses. Um, but then there's also uh, an interesting take on your on your new book. So can you tell us a little bit about what your, your new book is and then um, maybe maybe talk about um, you know what what is it like writing history uh, in in the context of uh, contemporary Indian politics. Mm. All right. So great, great set of questions there. Um, okay. So, so my new book, um, which is going by two different titles, somewhat confusingly. So in India and uh, the Pakistani edition as well, it is titled Aurangzeb, the man and the myth. The North American edition, which will also be available in Europe starting next month is titled Aurangzeb, the life and legacy of India's most controversial king. Um, my North American publisher said that, that nobody in America is going to know who Aurangzeb is, so I needed a more descriptive <laughs> subtitle. Anyways, um, so this is basically, um, in, in most respects, this is a straight-up biography of Aurangzeb Alamgir, the sixth Mughal king, the sort of last of the major Mughal kings who ruled for nearly 50 years, from 1658 to 1707. Um, no 
Owen has written a biography of Aurangzeb in a number of decades. There are a number of reasons for that. Some of it has to do with sort of an exhaustive treatment of Aurangzeb by an earlier scholar, Jadunath Sarkar. Um, but it also has to do with the politics surrounding Aurangzeb Alamgir. Um, he is by far the most hated of the Mughal kings. I would go so far as to say that he is probably the single most hated figure in all of pre-modern Indian history. People just absolutely despise this guy. He is regularly compared to Osama bin Laden, to Hitler, so on and so forth. I knew all of this going in. I knew that the book would be controversial. Um, and you are correct that I had a pretty, I had a pretty positive reception for culture of encounters. Um, you know, I, I didn't know what sort of reception I would get in India. I just didn't know how much interest there would be in that the first book. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised that it actually, you know, did pretty well and people read it and have, have sort of seriously engaged with it. I still get emails from people just sort of, you know, wanting to chit chat, asking questions about culture of encounters. The reception for Aurangzeb has been a bit different. Um, there are certainly people who like it, um, who like that I am bringing a fresh perspective and a sort of non-polemical perspective to a much maligned king. Um, but there are people that don't don't appreciate it as well. Um, I am the subject of, of hate mail on a daily basis on social media, especially on Twitter on basically an hourly basis now. Um, that's obviously not not a super pleasant experience. I naturally have very thick skin, which has served me, I will say, very well in this particular situation. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, just, I guess I sort of have mixed feelings about writing Indian history in this sort of contemporary um, environment. And it, and it is an environment that is sort of getting, getting worse all the time, especially with the sort of current political situation in India. Um, on the one hand, is it not every historian's dream somewhere deep down inside to be relevant? Right. When I started working on the Mughals nearly a decade ago, not that many people cared. Right. And I didn't think that very many people would ever really care about my work. Right. I thought I'd publish my first book, you know, seven and a half people would read it. And that would be that. Right. Um, and, and that's not what happened. Right. My work is relevant. People feel like it, it has something to say to them that is important in 2017. And I think that that is super exciting. Right. Um, I also think on the positive side of things that there is a real hunger in, in India for deep history, right? For real history, right? I mean, the, the sort of Hindu right right now is actively trying to rewrite textbooks to flatten out their, the, their sort of glorious, diverse, complicated past and to make it some glory story about, you know, the march of Hinduism forward only interrupted by the sort of harsh sword of Islam. And I think that there are a lot of Indians who sort of have this sense you know, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't really sound like it's, you know, really getting us into the meat of history. But then where are they supposed to turn? Right? Where where are people supposed to turn for who are hungry for for a sort of more historically grounded, even handed treatment and presentation of the past? Um, and I think that I'm able to provide that on select topics. And I think that that is an exciting thing. That said, on the negative side, um, you know, a lot of these sort of smear campaigns against me, against people connected to me, against anyone who dares to write a review of my book, I mean, this amounts to intimidation. Um, when I tell fellow scholars about some of this stuff, some of them are impressed, some of them think it's cool, and some of them think that I am totally insane for doing this. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, I had a sort of little Mughal reading group going on and I presented some of the Aurangzeb work to them. Um, and I asked them, you know, do you all think I should publish some of this as a popular book in India? And the overarching, there was diversity of opinion, but the overarching opinion was no, you're insane. Just publish it as a scholarly work in the United States and be done with it. If you do it in India as a popular work, like you're going to be hated, you're going to get pushback, they're going to talk about you, your family, it's just, it's not going to be a nice thing. Um, and I think that this intimidation, I mean, it's not stopping me, but I see that it is stopping colleagues of mine. And I am empathetic to that. I am empathetic to, to the reasons why one might not want to step into this fray. Um, but think about what suffers, right? History suffers. The ability of people in India and really across the world to, to understand um, the complexities of Indian history and sort of the, the real stories um, about, about the Indian past, that is what is going to be lost. And I think that that is deeply unfortunate. Yeah. 
Well, uh, thank you for your your courageous effort and continuing on. Um, what else uh, should we expect? More controversies with your your future work, or what? What exactly <laughs> are you uh, working on now? What can we expect, perhaps, a, a little bit further down the road? Mm. So I, I am at work on a third book project. Um, so the third book project, I want to look at Sanskrit literary histories of Indo-Islamic invasions and rule. Um, so Sanskrit writers, contrary to popular belief, actually start writing about Indo-invasion, uh, Indo-Islamic invasions and then rule basically almost at the moment that they really pick up in the late 12th century. There is a Sanskrit text from the late 12th century that talks about Gourd invasions into, into Ajmer and Delhi. Um, and so I'm going to start with that text. I'm going to go all the way through to the early 18th century when we start to see Mughal political histories, uh, basically texts that sort of by all accounts, you would expect to be written in Persian, and yet they happen to be written in Sanskrit. And sort of trace this series of historical works as a tradition. Um, the goal is to sort of uncover a Sanskrit tradition of historical or at least quasi-historical writing, and then also to see the evolution of Sanskrit ideas of the Islamic other, um, and sort of what are the variety of Sanskrit perspectives on the, the dawn and the expansion of Indo-Islamic rule, argue, which was arguably the single most kind of um, disruptive thing that happened in the second millennium in South Asia. Uh, so that's that's what I'm at work on now. Uh, this project will take a while. Um, I'm estimating three <laughs> to five years. You know, it's a, this is a lot of Sanskrit stuff to to work through. You know, I've got a day job, so on and so forth. So. <laughs> well, uh, you're you're doing great work, and we appreciate it. And uh, good luck on this this new project. Sounds exciting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Audrey Trushke about her great new book, Culture of Encounters: Sanskrit at the Mughal Court published with Columbia University Press in 2016. Thanks for listening to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.